uh, before I introduce our panel for this morning, um, I had, it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce the Dean of Harvard Divinity School, uh, David Hempton, um, who has a few words of welcome for all of you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. That's the most enthusiastic welcome I've had for years, I think. Um, uh, maybe the only enthusiastic? No. Anyway, good morning, everyone. I am David Hempton, as Dan said, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to um, HDS and to thank everyone for joining us yesterday and today to share ideas and raise awareness about the spirit of sustainable agriculture. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you yesterday morning, but deans um, sometimes have other things to do, and I, I had a, an appointment at headquarters. Um, um, my thanks also to um, uh, specific people, Ralph DeFlorio, Leslie McPherson, Artinian, Dan McCannon, and many others for working so hard over these uh, past few months to pull together this dazzling array of workshops, discussions, and opportunities to teach and learn uh, from uh, each other. With more than uh, 50 sessions to choose from, and uh, looking over them, I'd like to be at all of them, and uh, over 200 participants, it really is an extraordinary conference on really a vitally important uh, subject. To me, it's entirely appropriate that this conference on the spirit of sustainable agriculture um, uh, be held at HDS. Uh, all of us who study the world's uh, religions know that protecting the earth we inhabit, its lands and waters, its flora and fauna, is a mandate uh, found in all the world's great faith traditions. Anyone invested in asking life's deepest questions as we are discovers again and again how sustainability and what we grow and how we care for our home planet is deeply embedded in the religious traditions that shape our lives. If you have a moment, um, please feel free to come to the backyard of Jewett House, across there, um, where you will see our own sustainable agriculture. I, I stare out at it every, every morning and evening. Our own community garden, started by our students and staff, and newly rebuilt by uh, Ralph DeFlorio's excellent facilities team. Uh, Leslie's team of students and staff has already um, uh, started growing seedlings in the sunny windows of Rockefeller Hall. Uh, they will plant them, grow vegetables all through the season, then donate their crops, or at least the ones that we haven't stolen, um, uh, from the dean. Uh, no, we don't steal the crops. We honestly don't. Uh, then donate their crops <coughs> to the Faith Kitchen at Faith uh, Lutheran Church here in Cambridge at harvest time. So please enjoy your time here. I hope you find the experiences uh, valuable and learn new things and make new contacts that will be of use to you as you um, uh, get to work in this important uh, activity. I'd like to close, as I often do, with a quote from HDS's own Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, who in his essay on nature wrote that, quote, Every natural process is a version of a moral sentence. The moral law lies at the center of nature and radiates to the circumference. It is the pith and the marrow of every substance, every relation, and every process. All things with which we deal preach to us. What is a farm but a mute gospel? The chaff and the wheat, weeds and plants, blight, rain, insect, sun, it is a sacred uh, emblem from the first furrow of spring to the last stack which the snow of winter overtakes in the fields. This moral sentiment which thus scents the air, 
grows in the grain and impregnates the waters of the world, is caught by man and sinks into his soul. Nature never became a toy to a wise spirit. They're good words. So have a great day uh, and enjoy the sessions and thank you so much for coming. Thank you. <laughs>
Remember the people you saw and interacted with. Those you laughed with and those you cried with. Remember the language and cultural traditions practiced and sanctified within your home and community. Put yourself back in those buildings that you could probably still to this day walk through flawlessly with your eyes closed, the whole environment so familiar to you. What were the foods you shared? Were there trees outside your doors? Were there hills, skyscrapers, townhouses or rivers? Was it generally warm or hot or bitter cold? What were the sounds, the smells, the tastes? As you open your eyes and return to this space, I invite you to keep those memories present with you as I continue. It is no secret that everyone is shaped by his or her past. We come into each moment carrying memories, experiences, thoughts, challenges, ideas, relationships, strengths and weaknesses, emotion, energy levels, theories, beliefs. And we talk about this in many contexts, in psychology, education, criminal justice, economics. You get the point. It's just as important in the context of agriculture to recognize the unique and shared aspects of our personal journeys. And for many people in agriculture, um, agriculture is seen as a tool, as a means to feeding an exponentially growing global population or a critical aspect of environmental concern, as a romanticized concept of a simple and easy life or as a dirty job for the unseen and unknown other. Like most of you, I have been blessed to experience communities and individuals who innately engage in a sacred reciprocal relationship um, with agriculture. In Cambodia, I worked with uh, orphaned children with HIV and AIDS, in rural villages of El Salvador, the village of Tahachi in Navajo Nation, and various farms in Ireland in a community in Appalachia. I have also been blessed to witness an emotional shift developing this relationship. Most notable were moments shared with women in Idaho at a center um, for victims of domestic violence and sexual assaults. As well as in my undergraduate experience where I was introduced to agriculture as an act of justice through a social Catholic, Catholic social teaching lens with a course led by Shara and where Michelle was in. Um, I experienced the shift within myself and in developing greater clarity that interaction with agriculture is a relationship, I simultaneously developed a greater passion motivation and personal resilience in my evolving path as I, with you, work towards a truly sustainable agricultural system. Due to time limitations here, I'm not going to delve into a great amount of detail about uh, my personal journey and my personal experiences, though I would love to have conversations with people afterwards. Um, and my experiences may or may not parallel some of yours. Instead, I want to call attention to the differences among each of us and even more to the differences between each of us in this room and the people who are not here with us today. Because those people potentially don't have that dear, deeper spiritual connection with agriculture and with the natural world. Sacred human connection to the natural world and spiritual transformations take place right in front of us all the time, but often go unnoticed or unappreciated. It is essential that we, as leaders together, and advocates, for developing a deeper reciprocal relationship between human beings and agriculture, continue our work, but not only among similarly minded, spiritually engaged individuals. In recognizing the differences between us, we can and ought to weave together our experiences and culture, ideas and innovation, 
knowledge and curiosity without, of course, forgetting the sacred interconnectedness between each of us and through the earth we inhabit and grow from. Even more, we must invite in those, those in conventional and industrial agriculture to this conversation with accessible vocabulary and an open heart. Sustainable agriculture, I believe, will truly, only truly succeed in practicality when we societally recognize the potential for what I choose to call a sacred connection to the earth, but what I invite others to choose their own language that they are comfortable in defining for themselves. And also in recognizing the strength that uniting our differences has in fulfilling the shared responsibility. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Our next speaker is Michelle Velez, who uh, brings to us her experiences doing research with organic farmers in Panama, and also three years of very concerted effort to establish a campus garden or small farm at Villanova University. Okay, so my name is Michelle Velez, and I would consider myself a sustainable agriculture advocate turned nonprofit fundraising consultant through the journey of life. But I'm excited to be here today to share a little bit with you of the first encounters I had with sustainable agriculture and the spiritual meaning they had for me in the hopes that you will also remember your first encounters and everything that's led you here today as we continue to work towards the future of promoting sustainable agriculture outside of this room. So the first time I volunteered in a community garden was in college at Villanova University. And it was a very special moment because I had learned about all of the aspects of the social and environmental issues that were embraced by sustainable agriculture. And then the first time I was able to bring it together was at this community garden outside Philadelphia. And with my hands in the soil and people all around, I was so connected. And it was a connection with not just the soil, as you'll have experienced, I'm sure, at some point, but with the people who I was learning with, with the people who were eager to share what they knew with us, and with myself. I found that I was my best self and kind of more connected to my own sense of identity when I was working in the garden than I had been anywhere else. And so that's kind of what led me to do these other explorations that I'll share. So this was in Panama, which I'll get to, but first I wanna go back to Villanova. So continuing at Villanova, um, as Shara mentioned, I led various sustainability activism efforts on campus, culminating in this proposal for a community garden. And this was really eye-opening experience to see the importance of bringing people together for this shared project and the logis logistical difficulties that I found in actually making it a reality. And so while the proposal was tried and it didn't quite work out in the result of a physical space on campus. I think that for me and the journey that's led me here, it's actually been more important spiritually to not have had a physical space to start because then I was able to focus on the less tangible aspects of why it was so interesting to get involved in. So these are some of the gardens that we volunteered at. Since we didn't have our own physical garden on campus, we went out to volunteer in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas as well. And that brought me to Panama. So I was very interested in exploring these interconnected social, spiritual, and environmental aspects of sustainable agriculture. And so studying abroad in Panama in the spring of 2013, I um, engaged in a project to interview organic farmers throughout the um, Cerro Punta region of Panama, 
where there is lots of farming historically. And this was a very small group that got together to do an organic certification as a group. And it was an incredible opportunity to interview them all and see their farms and see their work firsthand. I want to share one story with this gentleman here, um, Don Roher. He was someone who invited me to stay with him and his wife in his home and explore his organic farm. But what was different about this um, farmer is that his farm was so far away from where he actually lived. A lot of other farmers would walk out their front door and it would be right there. But for him, we had to go all the way up to this top of the mountain. And what was meaningful in that was the one day we had set aside to go to the mountain, picture like just this tiny little town with all these dirt roads. And we had to pick a day that wasn't raining because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get to the top. And he also didn't have access to a car. So we needed to kind of encourage a neighbor to be kind enough to take us halfway up and then we would walk the rest of the way. And so we convinced this neighbor, he kindly offers to take us up in his truck, and we're going up. And the neighbor, of course, as is most of the community in that area, is a conventional farmer. And so the whole time we're in this truck, we're kind of getting an earful of, well, what are you doing? You know, why, why do you think this is so important? No, Don Roher over here, he's been trying this for years. And so we endured this, like, hour and a half long conversation of him giving us some, like, issues with his, you know, agriculture um, or his conventional agriculture perspective. And then we get to the top, and then we walk another half hour, and I'm just like, what are we doing? And we get to the top, and he turns around, and he goes, Michelle, we're here. This is it. And the look on his face was just incredible. And it was just pure joy. And that was why it was just so amazing to see the power of sustainable agriculture for every individual involved. And the fact that he was so willing to share that with me and with plenty of other students that had come before me and will continue to come after. And so that was just one of the most spiritually meaningful experiences getting up to that mountain and seeing what it meant to him and being honored that he would share that with me. Um, and that brought me back to the States. So then I came back to my hometown of New York and was engaged in community gardening efforts in the boroughs of New York City. And because I came from Panama, I was able to bring that there's, or to recognize the cultural significance that gardens had that I hadn't previously explored before. And so in volunteering and, and working with gardeners in Harlem and the Bronx and seeing that these immigrant communities really found empowerment and engagement and cultural celebration in these gardens together in little pockets around Manhattan was just incredible. And then I kind of graduated from Villanova and did a Princeton and Latin America fellowship in Mexico City for a year. And that was something very different. And I was engaging more with the entrepreneurial community in forms of um, kind of supporting sustainable development through entrepreneurship rather than focusing on agriculture. And I found it very exciting work, very engaging, but there was something missing from it. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. The whole time I was there, I was enjoying getting to know the different people in Mexico City, the culture, learning all the innovative projects, the entrepreneurs that we were working with were doing. And then I stumbled upon this beautiful little garden in Colonia Roma in Mexico City. And that's when I realized that's what I was missing. This is it. You know, This is what I feel is my most centering activity. And I'm sure that's why we're kind of here today, is we find it a, a very centering spiritual experience. And then finding that garden and being able to volunteer there for the rest of my time in Mexico was just an incredible opportunity where people from all over the world were coming. So it was not only locals who had started the, the gardening community, but also people from different countries who were finding their way um, in Mexico City and came together to create this space. So today, I continue to work on that relationship with Natural World by volunteering at this garden, um, well, this farm, rather, on Long Island. 
And what I want to leave with you today is kind of the inspiration I feel for the future. That when, um, even though back when I started the garden idea at Villanova and it didn't quite come to fruition, uh, I recently received a phone call from a current student who I had known when I was there. And he says that there's a new group of students promoting the same uh, proposal, but again, you know, changing it and shaping it differently to see what best works for the university. And that was just the most inspiring thing, that we're building constantly on the ideas that came before and constantly moving towards a better future. So thank you all for the time. Thank you, Michelle. Our next speaker is Sebastian Kretschmer. Um, I'm just looking for the PowerPoints here. Uh, Sebastian has a great deal of international experience as a biodynamic farmer. Um, a number of you in the biodynamic community, I think, know him, and I'm so happy he could join us today. Thank you. So somewhat of a, a social agropreneur, uh, but uh, really I've been feeling for the last 20 years like the uh, true definition of the peasant farmer, the one who does 100 different jobs. It's the Japanese word for the peasant farmer. So spirituality in agriculture, like the uh, German performance artist Josef Beuys said, spiritual experiences happen at Central Station. So likewise, while whitewashing the barn. Uh, but what really did it uh, to me was, uh, as a young apprentice in England, doing my biodynamic apprenticeship training, hearing about all these uh, you know, legends of Zarathustra and in the, in the fertile crescent of the Tigris and, and, uh, and, and, and Euphrates Valley, you know, this golden thorn that was used to first open the earth. When these initiates and druids, you know, were, were first, you know, conducting the sacred act of making land arable. Well, like these guys, some different kind of thorn there opening <laughs> the land at my old farm at uh, Kimberton Hills, um, Eco Village Healing Community. I ran a 200 member year round biodynamic CSA for 10 years. And uh, a rich place for conversations. Um, I always remember, you know, I don't follow any particular religion per se, but Jesus Christ, Sermon of the Mount, you know, speaking about you cannot harvest grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. It's powerful language. It's the archetypical gardener, right? Aren't we all involved in sort of purifying and, and gardening? farming, this regenerative type of agriculture is such a, a beautiful sort of roadmap almost to do those things. So my carbon neutral pigs, okay, turning the overgrown rampant Pennsylvania woods, uh, woods into a, a beautiful savanna, um, feeding them only scraps from the uh, local organic supermarket. Um, but yeah, the farm really is um, somewhat of a medium for um, socio-cultural impulses. I've always believed that the farm is the true universitas, you know, the sort of microcosm of life where everything is happening. So not just a site for production, but actually a vehicle that delivers all these important 
you know, impulses of economic uh, renewal, you know, healing of um, the earth, uh, different types of cultural uh, impulses from, you know, the jazzy sort of Sunday morning jazz breakfast in the garden to, you know, holding Ayurvedic and yogic uh, ceremonies and, um, you know, farm cinema and everything that is happening at the farm. So just a few images here. I'll be talking three brief acts, okay? Act one, my own biodynamic farm experience. Now I'm somewhat of a freelance consultant, um, and I got involved with, uh, as a uh, extended term, uh, supply chains consultant for the Estee Lauder Group, um, sourcing botanicals for the Aveda Corporation Natural Cosmetics and I was living um, in the Amazon um, for six months and then really um, just going back every year for about four years, helping the Yawanawa uh, community to responsibly grow the uh, raw ingredients that were then going to be used in the natural cosmetics, you know, Aveda um, cosmetics and so on. So this is uh, Kenoma. She was the first female um, shaman apprentice at the Yawanawa community. It's a 500,000 acre uh, rainforest territory in the Amazon basin. And to me, it seemed like, you know, bringing, uh, you know, some sort of food resilience project to the community was what, what came out of these conversations of free prior and informed consent when you work with indigenous communities, the idea was to help diversify um, the sort of natural economy there. And you know, what's closer than um, the tool of um, ecological agriculture, which is so close to the natural belief system of indigenous communities who are in many ways the guardians of these ecosystems. Um, so I was helping to prepare a carbon credit project um, paving the way for these payments for ecosystem services, set up this border patrol with the spears, making sure that the rubber tappers and the logging companies don't encroach on this sacred territory of the Yawanawa people. So this was the, um, the Urukum plant that was used for um, you know, the cosmetics. We brought about different types of impulses from a sort of village um, dairy to growing um, heritage pork uh, in the community instead of letting the pigs run around everywhere it causes some health problems. Act three um, is my uh, newest project at the Philadelphia prison system um, where I've built this two acre biodynamic orchard. And as you can see here, the gangster gardeners, um, you know, were um, growing apricot trees, cherries, plum, 250 trees. And again, um, Organic agriculture acts in a way as um, this sort of roadmap in a way to engage in, um, in a more sort of um, aware emotional uh, mechanics. You know, it, in, in many ways, I, I would like to equate sustainability um, to, well, love, essentially. If you consider what you do in sustainability, you reduce environmental degradation and you enhance biodiversity. What do you do in love? We reduce suffering and we increase happiness. 
So in, in many aspects, um, I believe that organic agriculture, for these guys especially, is a way to discover a certain lust for innocence, uh, rewiring, you know, using that regenerative gesture of agriculture um, as the sort of continuum to actually practice more self-awareness because the very gesture of organic agriculture is so much alike um, love. And so that's my message for today. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Our next speaker is Dr. Hisham Moharam. Uh, who brings to us um, also both international and United States uh, experience, uh, both in the agricultural sciences and as an organic farmer in New Jersey. Good morning, everybody. This has been an educational and uh, spiritual experience thus far. Thank you all for, uh, thanks uh, to the organizers and thanks to all attendees. I've uh, been learning a lot, I'm sure I will continue. So my name is Hisham Haram. I am um, an oddity in the conference. I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim. I think I'm one of a few here, maybe. Um, and um, I perhaps offer a perspective that you, most of you might not have heard of before. So. How does Islam um, address the topic of the conference? Well, for me, it's about how you understand Islam. So, Islam is a word that means uh, submission. Submission to the Creator's will, basically, in how you live your life. That's what Islam means. To be a Muslim, you're actually a person in submission to the Almighty. Um, most of us today around the world I mean, are not exactly living in submission. We're more like living to submit everything around us to us. Um, so for me, this is my faith in practice. Um, for, for years I had been hearing people saying, you know, there is so much enrichment of society by the uh, Christian churches, the uh, Jewish synagogues, the Hindu uh, uh, temples even, and we don't hear of you Muslims giving to the greater American society, giving back. So I pondered on that for a while, and uh, this is my answer to that question. So I am an American, and I am a Muslim. I was born in Egypt, but I've been here since I was 18. I think at this point, um, they have disowned me. Um, so for me, this is about showing everybody what my faith teaches me. Um, as a scientist, I, uh, I have uh, a PhD, and my field is plant biology and genetics. Uh, so I have seen the hidden side of how scientific research in the agricultural realm supports industrial agriculture. I've seen how the grant making works. I've seen who gives it and what they want in return. The system is rigged, yes, it is rigged, absolutely. So 
you might call this uh, an act of rebellion, uh, an activism um, against the system, but basically um, we're being fed a story and it isn't all true. Most of it isn't. So for me, this is about establishing a local food economy, um, showing people around us that we can produce food with environmental stewardship. My goal is to create this local community-owned, vertically integrated, youth-operated, um, and faith-based agribusiness with a network of certified organic farms. I'll probably die well below, before I achieve all of this, but it's my goal in life. It's my objective. It's my reason for being at this point. Um, so the business values, I decided to set it up as a business because I believe that uh, spiritually-based ideas won't last unless they are materially, economically sustainable. So it had to be a business model. And yet it's also a designed to rebel against the uh, pure capitalist business model. We'll see how in a minute. Okay. So I really liked the uh, concepts of slow money and uh, slow food. So a lot of their principles are incorporated into what I'm trying to do. So Islam for me is not a religion. <laughs> Uh, Islam is a way of life. It, uh, it affects how I tie my shoes, how I go to the restroom, how I treat my wife, how I eat my food, how I talk to people, how I get upset, how I uh, feel happy. It affects everything. Um, in the Quran, you'll see that there's basically three foci. Uh, the first is uh, the relationship between people and people. And the second is the relationship between uh, people and everything else God created around us. And the third is people to God. And the Quran says ex explicitly there is no compulsion in religion. So I don't agree with Christianity, I, otherwise I'd be a Christian. But I work with everybody who is a Christian. And I, I love many Christians and I have many, many uh, friends who are Christians or Jews or Hindus. But I don't agree with the creed. That's not a problem. It shouldn't be a problem when we're talking about sustaining the world we all live in because this is the one ship everybody's on. If it sinks, it doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe. We're all gone. Um, so through this project, I'm trying to address the first two points. So I've always seen that humanity's struggle uh, basically boils down to the good and evil. And uh, there's symbols for, for these, there's examples for how uh, good or evil manifest themselves, but you can actually simplify it down to something as simple as that. Um, in the Quran, there is a verse that says, you, meaning those who believe uh, and submit to God, as Islam explains, are the best of nations, brought forth to mankind and ordered to enjoin good and forbid evil, and to believe in God. So this is central to what Muslims and Muslim communities should be like with the non-Muslim others around them and with themselves. I'd like to make an appeal in a special way to the men in the army. Brothers, each one of you is one of us. We are the same people. The farmers and peasants that you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When you hear the words of a man telling you to kill, think instead in the words of God. 
Why did I put that in there? I'm rushed for time, so you're going to see I'm talking faster. Now. Um, Archbishop Bishop Oscar Romero was assassinated because he stood up to forces within his society in, in El Salvador that were causing the very, very violent repression of ordinary people. We have those same forces here, too. They are in every single country in the world. They manifest their power and control in different ways, depending on the facts that uh, rule that society. We're not quite at the stage of El Salvador. We very well may get there if things keep going the, the way they are. Uh, greed. It boils down to greed. Too many people greedy for material benefit and gain at any cost. So there is wealth inequality in America, there is a corrupt political system, pr uh, privatization um, of the prison systems. The list is very long, I could go on and on. But this is what I'm trying to prevent. Now, I'm one man, I won't be able to stop this. This is going to keep on happening for a while, I, I hope not too long. But when Pope Francis um, uh, issued his encyclical, that was a huge call for everybody to act. And he leads the Catholic Church, which is the biggest religious group across the world. And that makes a huge difference. I don't want to see this anymore. Do you remember Ilan? Yes. Okay. Ilan happened to get some media attention. Before him, after him, there are thousands of Ilans. Not just in the horrifically torn Middle East now, but all over the world. It doesn't need to be like this. So we've got to think globally, but act locally. I heard this when I first came in the 1980s. Um, so basically ask yourself, what can you do? That, that, for me as a Muslim, this is what it boils down to. On the Day of Judgment, I'm going to stand alone. None of you are going to be here to speak for me. What did you do? Given the health and the wealth and the influence that you have, what did you do to make things better? So my choice was to be an activist, and I started the Good Tree Farm. Um, in the Quran, we are spoken of as God's vicegerents. That's representative here on earth. Representative means you take care of what you are uh, given the responsibility for. Um, and then it also mentions the balance. The Quran is maybe 80% about nature. The verses in the Quran always speak about the water and the wind and the seas and the trees and the grass and the animals and the insects, all sorts of things. So, so this is what the farm is about. It's a tool to effect positive change. And I'm hoping it's going to be on an interfaith platform 
And that basically summarizes it. That's it. Thank you. Shisham. Our uh, second to last speaker is Joan Arman from the University of Denver, who is speaking to us today uh, about her work in exploring sustainable agriculture with students. I knew something was uh, very serious about the disconnect that my college students were experiencing with the natural world. When one of my students wrote in a reflective essay <clears throat> after some farm field work we had done with our class, today I touched a worm for the first time. It was a life-changing experience. On the one hand, I was stunned. But on the other hand, I thought, mm, this really motivates me. Uh, Shara and I have worked together on creating humanities-based agriculture classes at our different universities. I'm in Denver at Regis, and Shara is at Villanova. And um, I must say, though, on the other side of that, I have been so very much energized by students just like Lauren and Michelle, who have grabbed onto this idea of working out in the field and um, I asked myself, what are my particular motives, my goals? First of all, is to give students the opportunity, students who are normally closed up in classrooms all day long and then going to one or two jobs afterward at the end of the day to stay in college, the opportunity to just touch the earth, just to feel it, to smell it, to be in it, and to know it, and hopefully, I hope, perhaps come to care for it through tending it. And I've actually seen this happening in a really beautiful way. Another goal I had was for students to learn from the best mentors that I could possibly find for them. Turns out to be farmers. Farmers are their heroes, people they have never known, never talked to. When I ask them to draw a picture of a farmer the first day of class, they draw the very typical guy with the pitchfork and um, of course male and of course in overalls and um, looking somewhat raggedy even, that picture changes dra dramatically on the last day of class. They're drawing uh, people of all different generations, all different colors, diff wearing all different kinds of clothing. One of my farmers with whom I work with my classes is Deb Neely, a woman who retired from a, the Denver Post newspaper and decided that she just wanted to do something entirely different planted a tomato seed, couldn't believe it grew in her yard. It's now a, a very tiny urban farm that we work on with her in her front yard and backyard. Students are just amazed at what she can fit into this small space. She's a permaculturist, as I am. And so um, another goal was, a uh, third goal was for students to learn knowledge, skills, and values that would stand them in good stead in the coming times, whatever those times are. They may be very gentle, very uh, easy, but they could also be very challenging. I want them to know how to grow their own food, even if it's just an introduction during the time they spend with me, although I will say that Shara and I have both had experiences of students writing to us a year or two or three years later. Um, one said, all right, I'm in Arizona, and uh, this guy's given me a piece of land, and I'm not quite sure I'm not remembering the first step. Could you remind me? 
And so um, I go ahead and correspond with her in that way. But it's, there is a shift happening, I believe, in students realizing that this disconnect is not healthy for them. They want to know um, about what their food, where it comes from. And they also want to know these people and learn from these people, the farmers. Um, so I'm just, uh, because the time is brief, I'm not going to even go through the theoretical part of this. But I would like to just start with these hands. These are the hands of Eugene Hawkes from San Luis, Colorado. Um, he lives in one of the poorest counties of the state. Uh, my students and I work with him. I met him through my colleague, Nikki Gonzalez, with whom I teach in the spring. And uh, we go, this was from a trip in the fall. We spent a weekend there. He brought his beans to us, his very precious Belito beans. I took this photo of his hands. And he said, <clears throat> these are lifeblood. These are sacred. These have come down through the generations. They were found finally in my cousin's cellar. And they were, at that one time we were there, they were working with a scientist from the state of Washington who was helping them to grow out the beans to select very carefully and um, just the, to track the possibility that it, these were perhaps heritage beans from Spain. But <clears throat> the other thing that students have written about and learn is that, um, and I'll change the slide here so we can see their words. Um, let's see, there we go. The students and I had a discussion at dinner in Taos afterward. We were also working there with some farmers. And they were saying these words, that they noticed Eugene was giving thanks to the soil, the bolito beans, uh, and the acequia, the water ditch, and that he worked in his field saying his rosary and our fathers and realizing that everything is sacred. They were really impressed by that. Here, this is uh, Shannon Francis, a Navajo Hopi woman who is working with us. She works in the inner city of Denver with Native American youth, trying to teach them their heritage and work with them in a permaculture garden. Um, what students wrote about her was very much her sacred connection to the land and how they admire that and uh, were working to develop that perspective and that closeness to the land. And finally, I'd like to just finish briefly with a quote uh, from Roxanne Swenzel, a Tewa Pueblo elder in the Santa Clara Pueblo. She said to me when I interviewed her for an afternoon, I said, what would you say to my college students? They have a really heavy burden. Some of them actually are depressed about the statistics of climate change. Um, how can we give them hope, but also some guidance? And she said, tell them to know their place. And she meant to know, where do they live? What does this place, what are the gifts this place has to give? But what do we give back to this place? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Joan. Um, I am our last presenter in this panel, and I will really try to stay closely within a short presentation here so we have time for some questions. All right, so when my students in my organic agriculture course return 
radiant from field work or write in their field work logs that they have had some kind of pivotal experience on the farms, I want to know what has occurred for them. And so what I'm exploring with you today are undergraduate students' experiences of connection to the life community during field work on organic farms. And my assessment is that when undergraduates provide what Joan and I have been terming active care in a sustainable agriculture situation, they experience membership in a life community that they often perceive as sacred. So a guiding question for me is, how can we teach about human connection to the sacred life community especially to students whose culture and educational institutions often are saying that the sacred does not exist. So one way that I'm approaching this is through humanities-based agricultural theory and practice. And uh, both in my classroom and through fieldwork on organic farms in um, urban Philadelphia and the suburbs of Philadelphia, my students encounter opportunities to perceive the natural world in ways that go beyond uh, simply the rational and the intellectual, which many of them are experiencing on campus. I often have environmental science or engineering students, and go beyond that to also incorporate spiritual awareness. I do not typically teach overtly about the sacredness of the life community in my classroom. Um, a few of my course readings address it, but I prefer to let students discover what <laughs> unfolds for them during field work. And I find that whether it's under the influence of childhood experience or personal spiritual beliefs, religious background, uh, perhaps our course readings, the influences of the natural world and or the farmers that they talk with during field work, every year I have students who are writing about their glimpses of connection between people and a sacred life community in the context of sustainable agriculture. It seems to me that students typically first see the life community as an integrated, interrelated community, and this can be a purely scientific, ecological understanding. They then may also come to see it as sacred. And feeling personally a part of a membership in the sacred life community also occurs for some students. I'm defining sacred as something worthy of respect or reverence because it embodies or represents the vital life force that we may variously associate with God or spirit, nature, or earth. Some influences on my understanding as I, again, try to understand what is happening for students uh, include Wendell Berry's concept of membership from his novel Hannah Coulter. Um, Barry uses the term to describe very deep, mutually supportive relationships that occur among people who are living multi-generationally in the same home place. Um, and I sort of extend Barry's idea of members in chaos to the roots. I almost felt like an invader, but I knew that I wasn't there destroying. I was there to build, and that made my disruption almost acceptable. Students also seem discover, to discover that active care can create in them an awareness that the sacred is inclusive and embraces the entire life community of plants, animals, insects, dirt, and more. And this tends to be something they're very excited about. A lot of my students come from um, a Christian and often a Catholic religious background that's leading them especially to think about humans and the earth. And it's an expansion for them to think about the life community um, being even broader than that. 
As my student Christian wrote, today it was really cemented in my mind just how interconnected we all are on this planet. And as you can see here in this statement from Josie, um, she was very struck by how multiple life forms cons constitute a really integrated whole on the very tiny urban permaculture farm where she worked. I find that the experience of providing active care opens students to a sense of how they individually fit into a whole, their membership in the life community. Some of my students think of organic agriculture as a revival of good life ways or forms of membership from the past. So recently, um, my student Victor wrote, I found myself connecting with my Native American roots by working with the field and not against it. Other students write about how experiencing organic agriculture reminds them that membership in the life community is crucial to who they are as humans. So uh, I have this statement here from Laura who said, um, although we seem to want to forget it, humans are just as much a part of nature as anything else. And that's something that I often find them reflecting on after their fieldwork experiences. So uh, another question, of course, that I'm asking through these courses is how can we create or regenerate a sacred human connection to the earth? And in particular, how can undergraduate education contribute to a renewal of the human earth membership relationship, especially through agricultural learning? I find that through experiencing active care in the context of a course that explores both theory and practice, students see that in caring for the earth, they are also caring for themselves, and they discover that their care is not the only form of care occurring, but that birds and pollinating insects, earthworms and soil microorganisms also are caring for the life community and are part of the membership. And as I mentioned earlier, I really appreciate Robin Wall Kimmerer's phrase of practical reverence because I think it, it very resonantly describes what my students seem to be experiencing. So there's much more work to be done to uh, think about sustainable agriculture in the context of undergraduate education, but I want to stop there. We have just a little bit of time for questions, and I am very happy to take questions directed to any member of the panel. What are our denominations? 
we become Americans. I mean, I've been born in America. My sense of Christianity here is that we do it very badly. And, uh, no, I don't need that. The rest of the world is <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, just that I'm, I'm concerned about my faith, Christianity. Got to redeem it from Americanism. I'm just wondering, how are you concerned about Muslims in this country and how they might lose their faith just by being American? Well, okay, so what I was trying to say actually is it, it actually doesn't have anything to do with being American, Egyptian, Korean, Tanzanian. It's, it's, it's a part of our human nature. You can be yellow, you can be white, you can be black, you can be brown, pink, whatever you are. You are a human being, and the Creator created the same thing. It doesn't matter if you wear Armani or if you go barefoot. It's the same human being. You're driven by the same needs and desires. So whether it's Muslims, or Catholics, or Protestants, or Hindus, everybody's subject to the corrupting influence of materialism and greed. And you see it, the elite in every one of those countries. Some are majority Hindu, some are majority Buddhist, some are majority Muslim, but the elite in every one of those countries, the very, very rich and very, very powerful and very, very connected, who call the shots and own the media, are they particularly spiritual and religious? Maybe a few, but most of them, it's about the bank account. That's always been the problem. What's the difference between them and Pharaoh and his, uh, uh, and his uh, uh, priests and ministers? The same thing. We just call it a different system of governance, but it's the same age-old problem. It has nothing to do with being American or anything else. We might have, do we have time for one more question or do we need to? One more. Okay. okay. Uh, I just want to uh, quickly say I also really appreciate you all being here. Um, I like want to be friends with all of you. I think I speak for everyone when I say that. Um, and I'd also like to third the motion on behalf of, uh, uh, of my brother and sister here in front who uh, mentioned that Romero, they were touched by that part of it. I live and work with uh, Campesinos in El Salvador. Um, so despite the fact that I'm a Protestant pastor, my relationship to Romero is no longer safe for mainline Protestantism because that's just what happens uh, when you live there with the people. Um, and on that track, you know, I think we're all motivated by whatever sense of the divine we have um, or sense of the spiritual we have to do what we do. Um, but who, according to all of you, and maybe you all can give a brief answer, um, who are our heroes or saints or models who were humans, uh, you know, uh, who, who lived and died and sinned along with us, but uh, who paved a path for us of greater justice, not just for the earth, but for the people, especially the poorest people who are most affected um, by climate change and by environmental degradation. Hmm. Let's see, should we each give a brief response? Any particular models or mentors for you, Sebastian? Yeah, just briefly. Um, I believe that the, um, uh, in the end, um, human rights and the uh, carbon footprint will essentially be 
um, you know, what creates world peace. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so um, I, uh, I just think that, um, you know, also I've traveled in West Africa, for instance, and there, uh, in these small towns, you know, the, the mayors in these agrarian communities are the big drug dealers. They sell all this farm crack, you know, the synthetic fertilizers, the works, and so on. And, um, you know, I asked one of them, so, you know, would you, would you sell other stuff too, like humates and, you know, <laughs> you know, botanical insecticides and so on? He said, um, yeah, I just want to sell shit, you know? <laughs> And so I think we need, to, we need to strengthen, you know, I'm working in Cuba now too, through investments, wise investments, impact investments. It's the only thing that we can actually turn this thing from a spiritual discipline into something that can truly save the planet and the people. Yes, thank you, Sebastian. Uh, I could mention many, many names. Um, I teach a, a sustainable, um, not only a sustainable agriculture course, but an ecology and humanities course that covers uh, sort of the span of Western Civ. So um, since I already had a chance to mention um, Thomas Berry and Wendell Berry, I'll leave it at that. But I also teach the work of um, some really interesting medieval saints uh, all throughout Basil of Caesarea and let someone else take a turn. Uh, and I just will also very briefly mention uh, among the many, many authors who are standouts for my students would be Wangari Matai and her planting of the trees, her standing up to the system in, uh, I believe, Kenya, and really um, being beat up for it and imprisoned. And so my students very much are enamored of her and her book that tends to be have a very Christian perspective. But she's quite a hero among my students. Uh, Wangari Matai, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, but yes, it's M-A-T-H-A-I, um, and she was a Nobel Peace Prize recipient, um, quite a leader. Um, many people come to mind for me, among them uh, a lot of the women that I worked with out in Idaho um, at the Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Shelter, um, and then also um, the two, uh, it's a couple from Kentucky actually, the people that moved out to Cambodia and um, started this orphanage where there are about 400 uh, orphaned children with HIV and AIDS. Um, and within that um, orphanage, it's kind of like a little village uh, within itself, which is really neat. Um, they have a, a sustainable agriculture system where the children um, learn about economics and learn responsibility and are really engaged with the earth. And you can see them um, spiritually engaged, but also learning some practical tools that they'll be able to use in their life. And so John and Kathy Tucker um, are those two individuals who moved out there. Um, their organization is New Hope for Cambodian Children, um, if you guys are interested, but the two of them. And from my experience, I would suggest just people who engage in farming, I like like was mentioned before, the farmers and the urban gardeners, and specifically the urban gardeners fascinate me because that's taking kind of what we've seen as two opposing forces throughout the development of the world that cities would kind of exclude the natural and become focused on kind of more like uh, corporate or, or material endeavors. Um, and to see that people are actively working to bridge that gap and to make it a livable gardening force in a city. So I'd recommend, like, I've worked with Philly Urban Creators. They're a great organization. Um, and then um, I was interning at Green Thumb, which is kind of the overarching community garden organization in New York City. So those are two organizations that I could recommend that 
the people who run them and, and work with them are just incredible heroes. I, I don't need to say much more, but basically the, the faces of the diamond are, some of them are right up here in front of you. It's, it's the same diamond. Choose one face that fits you and act. Do something. That's all I have to say.